Uh, my name is Hannah Sheaves, and I'm a staff writer for the journal, and I'll let our other moderators uh, introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Allison, and I'm going to be a moderator today. Hi, my name is David Noni. I'm a forum editor for the journal, and I will also be moderating this discussion. Um, so tonight is our first event. We are having our roundtable discussion on the topic of elections law, which has become an important issue really at the forefront of discussion regarding the 2020 presidential election, as well as recent changes in elections law in states such as Georgia. Um, we're excited to invite three keynote speakers today to join us in our discussion um, to talk about the past, present, and future mechanisms of elections law in the United States. Uh, we welcome Professor Michael Kang from Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law, uh, Professor Neil McKeeja from the University of Pennsylvania's Cary Law School, and Professor Kate Shaw from Cardoza School of Law uh, to lead our discussion. So I'll allow uh, each of them to introduce themselves and talk a little bit about their background and their research. So uh, we'll start with Professor Kang. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael Kang. I uh, teach law at uh, Northwestern. Uh, Pritzker School of Law, and um, I focus on election law. I do a little bit of business association law and corporate voting and stuff, um, but I mainly focus on election law, which encompasses, I think, generally speaking, campaign finance, voting rights, redistricting, um, some direct democracy stuff, um, election administration, which has become a really big and important part of election law uh, more recently, uh, and have kind of written and taught and advocated, commentated, all those things uh, for about 15 years or something like that since I started um, teaching law uh, a little while back. Uh, I have a little bit of a background in political science, so I can talk about how law teaching uh, has evolved and started to incorporate more and more social science. Um, but uh, I write about that kind of stuff and excited to talk to you about what's been happening more recently, uh, and in particular in the 2020 election, and then in certain states like Georgia and Texas um, since the election. Um, yeah, so excited to be here. Thanks. Awesome, thank you. And uh, now Professor Makija. Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, my name is Neil Makija. So I, uh, I teach a class called Law and Candidacy at, at Penn Law. I, I, uh, I actually full time, I, I run an organization called Impact. It's an Indian American advocacy group that helps uh, train candidates and support candidates for elected office uh, broadly in our community and for Asian Americans. Uh, we played a significant role in the Georgia elections and the runoffs uh, in the in January this year. Um, I got uh, started teaching because as a candidate, uh, I litigated a case that was my own, uh, which uh, basically I ran for the Pennsylvania House in 2016 and was sued by the Republican Party. Uh, uh, under the idea that I was not a citizen of the state uh, under the residency requirements. I won the case uh, and I started basically teaching and getting involved as, as a practicing election lawyer after that. Um, but happy to talk more about campaign finance. Uh, my organization uh, runs uh, a 501c3, a 501c4, a PAC, a federal PAC, and a 527. So very familiar with these issues from a practice perspective. Awesome, thank you. And Professor Shaw. 
Great. Hi, I'm Kate Shaw. I teach at Cardozo Law School in New York City. I'm a graduate of the law school at Northwestern. Um, so I teach classes on constitutional law, administrative law, legislation. I do a seminar on the Supreme Court. Um, and my work has spanned a bunch of different areas. I've written about the presidency and presidential rhetoric um, a good amount in the last couple of years. I was a White House lawyer in the first term of the Obama administration um, before I got into law teaching, um, but I've written about the Supreme Court and reproductive rights and justice. Um, and it's sort of campaign finance is the thing that I've done the most on in this kind of general law of democracy. Um, and I actually got into working in government sort of through a political campaign. I worked um, coming out of law school and my two clerkships. Um, I ended up basically like putting my law school loans into hardship deferral and taking an unpaid job uh, in Pennsylvania, working in the state headquarters of the Obama for America campaign in 2008. So it was about pretty late in the presidential campaign cycle. So it was at this point where you couldn't really get a paid job on a campaign, but I really wanted to work on the campaign. I had worked on uh, Ben, you know, Senate candidate Obama's 2004 Senate race, and I really wanted to work on the presidential. So I just took an unpaid job. Um, it's a story I like to tell students because sometimes getting into politics requires these like leaps of faith and willingness to take unpaid jobs, for which you're both kind of over and under qualified. And all of that describes my sort of foray into presidential campaigning. Um, and that turned into a job on a presidential transition um, and then a lawyer job in the White House Counsel's Office. Um, and so, and I would have stayed in government, I think probably longer, but family took me to New York um, and I got into law teaching um, and it's been a great gig. So happy to be here with you guys tonight. Awesome. Um, and thank you all again so much for joining us. Um, so now I'll be handing it over to our other two moderators uh, to begin our general discussion. Hi, thank you guys so much for being here. We're really excited to be here today to discuss, you know, voter suppression and election law with you. So thank you for your time. Uh, we want to dive right into our first question, which is for all three panelists. And that is, what is the most pressing legal issue currently for your research in the field of election law? Uh, we can start with Professor Kang. Well, for me, those are two different questions. There's, there's stuff I'm studying, and I, I don't know that they're necessarily the most pressing questions. I think in election law right now, you do have um, a pretty coordinated effort across almost every state to try to limit voting. Um, and that's in response to um, what people on the right think happened uh, in, the, in the 2020 election, which I think no objective observer thinks that there was widespread fraud or uh, systematic wrongdoing, but, but it's a widespread belief on the, on the right. And so they feel that it's necessary to impose lots of restrictions and cutbacks in voting. So I think that's the kind of most pressing issue is kind of what, what courts are gonna do about that, what people on both sides of this issue, uh, you know, essentially it falls along partisan lines, Republican versus Democrat. Um, what that what that's gonna what how that's gonna affect the law uh, kind of long term. I can talk more about what I study kind of um, more specifically, which uh, tends to be a lot about partisan polarization, which definitely has a lot to do with what's going on. That election law, say when I started my career, wasn't quite actually as partisan, even though this was flowing not that long after Bush versus Gore. I started teaching in two thousand four, Bush versus Gore, as, as some of you guys might know or remember. Uh, that's changed <laughs> as I've proceeded in my teaching career. Fewer and fewer people remember that. But Bush versus Gore was a, a highly partisan um, legal contest over who won the 2000 election. Um, but, but having said that, election law wasn't nearly as polarized as it is now. And so I think a lot of what I write about is about how partisan polarization has affected um, the way all these election law issues play out. Um, uh, and, it, and it has dramatically. Election administration 
uh, in 2000 or 2004 was largely kind of a boring backwater that no one really cared about or thought about. Um, and today it's kind of in the news all the time because um, given the level of partisan competition, how close elections are and how both sides have kind of retreated in their own camps and see each other as, as enemies, um, it's become kind of where people think elections are, are decided even before the voting starts. Um, and so I, I study a lot of that and I also study judicial elections, um, which is a little bit different than um, election law, but it's about um, how state judges are elected. Uh, and uh, I think political actors all across the spectrum kind of see their ability to affect the law by uh, changing who gets elected to the state bench. Um, and so those elections have become more competitive, more politicized, more expensive. And so I write a bit about empirically um, with an economist, a co-author who's an economist, um, about uh, the role of money in state judicial elections and how the money influences the, the case outcomes that result on the back end. So um, that's sort of my quick take. So in terms of the most pressing issue, um, I really feel that it's, it's the structure um, of, of our representation in government. And uh, when it comes to, when it comes, if you had asked me this question a few years ago, it might've been disengagement and voters not voting and kind of the solution people, uh, uh, the solution being that people would participate and then government would kind of represent um, you know, our communities better and the issues that, um, you know, that, that we need addressed in the country. But I think the bigger problem now is that uh, we're getting to a point, and you see it, you've seen it in 2016 and 2000, where, um, you know, with the presidency, it's the Electoral College, um, or in the Senate, it's the fact that Wyoming has the same number of senators as California, or that DC has no representation. Um, and the general trend is that, you know, and many of you as students, uh, you know, may, you may be from small towns in rural communities like I am, and you, you've moved to cities uh, where your vote probably doesn't matter in terms of determining the future um, and the direction of the country on a national level, if you're going to New York or DC or, or even staying in Chicago. Uh, so that, uh, that's not something that's going to change and may even get worse uh, unless we change uh, you know, the, the, the Senate and um, the Electoral College and, and the structure um, of things there. And we, we've seen some positive uh, trends in terms of uh, against partisan gerrymandering. So uh, in Pennsylvania, for example, here, the state Supreme Court struck down districts that were heavily lopsided where there were, uh, I think, 15, I think it was 15 to three, 15 Republicans to three Democrats prior to 2018, and now it's 9-9, which is more reflective of, of the state's uh, views and, um, and breakdown uh, in terms of partisanship. Uh, that's still not the case in every state. There are many cases, uh, states that are still heavily gerrymandered, but even if you solve it for Congress uh, after the census, and you know, if there is an attempt to, uh, if there is action federally or in states to get rid of partisan gerrymandering, you still have the problem with the Senate and the Electoral College. So I, I would say that's the most pressing issue. Um, and, and I don't wanna duplicate. Um, so maybe I'll just mention a couple of other dynamics. Um, one in the law of campaign finance, um, the one kind of 
mode of campaign finance regulation that remains solidly constitutional post Citizens United is disclosure, uh, right, of the sources of political money and sort of the expenditures uh, to which political money is put. Um, and I am worried that the Supreme Court as presently constituted is not too far from kind of dismantling. So first we have very um, spotty coverage of our existing campaign finance disclosure laws. Um, and I'm worried that even those laws that remain on the books are vulnerable. The court has a case regarding donor disclosure law in California. That's not a campaign finance case exactly, but that I worry um, may lay the groundwork for the court actually, despite having 8-1 in Citizens United, uh, affirm the constitutionality of disclosure requirements may be sort of on the cusp of changing course um, and further deregulating money in politics. Um, you know, it's said we can't do a lot to limit it, but at least we can make sure that, you know, sunshine is brought to bear on, you know, political money uh, and the way it flows through our system of, of, of campaigns and elections. And again, I, I worry that that um, is quite vulnerable at the moment. Um, and then just to elaborate a little bit um, on some of the things that Neil said about both gerrymandering. So um, as you guys may know, in 2019, the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision held that challenges to political gerrymanders are non-justiciable political questions. So federal courts are not going to resolve their constitutionality. Um, there has been, I think, productive movement uh, in the state. So a handful of state courts have Construing their state constitutions struck down uh, as unconstitutional partisan gerrymanders. Um, but I worry that in the states that don't have the constitutional protections that either can fairly be read or will be read to limit the amount of partisanship that can go into district drawing, um, the fact that the court has basically now said there's no real federal constitutional limit. For years, it had been very unclear what, if any, federal constitutional limits existed when it came to partisan gerrymanders. But I think that tension limited the kind of brazen partisan gerrymanders, or at least placed some limitation on sort of how much political advantage district drawers would seek in making their state maps. And I worry with the removal of that limitation, it's sort of going to be open season um, in states that don't you know, have an independent redistricting commission, as a few states do, um, or have state constitutional limits that have been read um, to prevent sort of extreme partisan gerrymanders. And the last thing, just on the Electoral College, um, it's, it's, I mean, I kind of think that everyone is still a little bit shell-shocked coming out of the 2020 election. And to me, there's kind of been an underemphasis on how responsible the Electoral College was for sort of how close we came to a genuine democratic crisis. I mean, I'm not sure I would say we didn't have one, but certainly not uh, a fatal one. Um, I mean, the, you know, the, our democracy emerged relatively intact. Um, Joe Biden was, you know, inaugurated on January 20th after having clearly won both the national popular vote and more importantly in our system, the electoral college vote. Um, but, you know, a couple, the 40, whatever it is, 80,000 or 40,000 flipped votes across three states would have resulted in a tied vote, which under the constitution would have meant the House of Representatives with each state delegation getting a single vote um, would have selected the president. And because there were more Republican than Democratic controlled delegations in the House, uh, almost certainly Trump would have then been selected through that kind of backup mechanism in the electoral college. Um, so we both have that kind of near miss. And then we also have the fact that these kind of ambiguities and sort of odd moments in the kind of sort of strange Byzantine process that is our electoral college or the thing we call the electoral college system that's part constitutional and part statutory were very much like kind of able to be exploited by President Trump and his post-election efforts, culminating, of course, in the January 6th 
insurrection attack on the Capitol, which was designed to disrupt this statutorily required, both constitutionally and statutorily required process for opening um, and uh, counting electoral votes. Um, and so all of this, I think, makes me think there should be a genuine movement afoot, as there have been you know, many times in American history, most successfully almost in 1969 and 1970, to actually constitutionally abolish the Electoral College. There are reform movements, but abolishing the college doesn't seem to really be at the top of anybody's kind of priority list. And, and I worry that folks like you, like we just have kind of gotten out of the habit of constitutional amendment, right? Like we last amended the constitution in 1992. I have this little hope that the equal rights amendment revival movement is gonna, inspire a generation of young people to think seriously again about amending the constitution, not just reforming the college, but abolishing it. Um, but I guess if there's one thing I could say, it's that I think all the time about how there needs to be more kind of popular mobilization around uh, electoral college uh, abolition before we actually end up in an even more dangerous place than we almost were coming out of 2020. Thank you. Uh, so to return to your first remark on campaign finance, I'd like to ask all of you, which values campaign finance laws and litigators should strive to uphold in their cases and the application of those laws. Uh, we can start again with Professor Kang. So I think the thing with campaign finance law that's frustrating is that uh, if you're familiar a little bit with the law, the law is really focused on the government justifying any regulation with respect to the prevention of what it calls quid pro quo corruption. Now, what's weird when I teach the campaign finance law is that's not typically what people think campaign finance regulation is about. People typically think campaign finance regulation is about equalizing voice, that what you're trying to do is limit the influence of really wealthy people to kind of uh, have disproportionate influence on how elections are decided and how what issues are discussed and what the agenda looks like. But as far as the law goes, you can't go into court and say, we need to limit contributions or um, promote disclosure because we want more equality. But that's kind of the political case for it. So I think, I think equality ought to be at kind of the forefront of the way we think about campaign finance and we ought to have regulation that's really oriented toward that goal, but that's impermissible as a constitutional law matter. And so that mismatch, I think, is, is a real problem. So when Kate, uh, Professor Shaw is talking about uh, constitutional amendment, that's one place where there are people pushing for a constitutional amendment to allow campaign finance regulation that's directed toward equalization of voice or political influence or however you want to think about it. Um, because right now, there's just no way around a case called Buckley versus Vallejo that I'm sure some of you guys have heard about. Um, so I'm a little ambivalent about the constitutional amendment uh, route because um, all the reasons why um, Donald Trump, for instance, has had the ability to get elected in 2016 and why it was so close in 2020 have to do with this um, kind of minority overrepresentation um, through the Electoral College. And I, I worry that actually you could have that play out with constitutional amendment as well because there's a similar dynamic in terms of how constitutional amendments are passed. But I think when it comes to campaign finance law, there's just really no other way, um, certainly given the way the court looks right now. Um, but if you're asking kind of what are the important values that we ought to see in campaign finance, and unfortunately, we're not seeing those um, really debated and really driving campaign finance law and regulation today, it's this uh, government interest in equality that 
uh, is impermissible under the um, under the law we have. Um, Professor Shaw, if you'd like to respond to that. Sure. I mean, so just disclosure is sort of where my expertise is to the extent that there really is any. But I mean, the court sort of has talked about um, a couple of distinct interests that disclosure advances. So kind of a general information interest in disclosure and also an accountability. So one, it'll just allow us to cast votes um, as, you know, as, as voters that are informed in a way that kind of transcends just kind of party labels, which are always going to give us some information, but the disclosure about the sources of campaign spending will help us to better evaluate kind of candidacies. Um, and then also that kind of post-election, like for, you know, people who are incumbents and running, um, or even if we're not even talking about kind of another election, but post that the election of a particular individual, that we can figure out the interests um, a candidate or, or, or elected official is actually serving by tracing sort of, you know, votes and de decisions uh, with an eye to kind of sources of political spending and that all of that just makes us kind of more informed and better voting. And to the extent there is empirical work on this, it, it actually does seem as though information about the sources of campaign spending does impact the choices that people make at the ballot box. So there's a real um, connection between giving people information again about sources of campaign spending and their ability to cast in informed votes. So, so again, in the disclosure space, those are the kinds of interests that the court at least still recognizes. I mean, I totally agree with Professor Kang that, um, that and I'm not, I, there, in a, there should be a world, I'm not sure constitution, if you take a long enough time horizon, constitutional amendment shouldn't be the only right remedy, potentially convincing the court that this equalization or, you know, minimization or response to the kind of vast power of concentrations of wealth in political campaigns, that all of those things are permissible reasons for government to intervene in elections. But of course, it, 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 that's obviously right. As, as current doctrine stands, you would need to amend the constitution. But I wonder whether, um, you know, trying to figure out new framings or new justifications in the short term is something that, I mean, people are obviously working on, but that remains something that might be worth pursuing as well. But in the in the disclosure space, those are the kinds of interests that courts continue to, to credit and recognize. Although, as I said, um, I am nervous about sort of what may be to come in that sphere. And Professor Makija? Uh... Sure. Um, so I think um, one value that a lot of people don't think about is, is just this basic idea of representation and what uh, an elected official or a candidate's job is supposed to be. So, um, you know, are, if, we, if we focus on limiting money in politics, often you think of contribution limits and that actually in a system where there is outside spending really incentivizes a candidate to spend all of their time raising money and with donors. And, you know, that, that I think some studies have shown that, you know, that skews uh, their, the candidates' views, priorities, um, policies, and that sort of thing. So, you know, there are public financing systems where you're still raising money and, um, you know, you as a candidate are still going out spending time with people who can donate, but it's either for smaller amounts or that money gets matched by a municipality as in, as in New York, it'll get matched six to one. Um, and then the candidate is spending less time on raising the resources to communicate and actually, you know, involved in um, you know developing policy, hearing out uh, people who are not there for their you know to donate money, but who are their constituents, and I, I think that's a, that's a, a, a value that often gets kind of um, overlooked. Thank you. Um, so our next question is.
what are the biggest challenges to the selection being fair and legitimate? I'm not sure I heard the end of that question. Could you repeat that? What are the biggest challenges to local elections in the future being fair and legitimate? Oh, um, local elections as opposed to other elections? Or, or just elections? Yeah, state, ele like state elections, uh, not federal, presidential, non-national elections. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's happened um, is people kind of vote the same in federal, state, and local elections now. So it used to be that, you know, back in, in the middle of the 20th century, let's say, the Democratic Party might be ideologically quite different at the state level, the national level, and the local level, to the degree that, like, the local election was um, partisan. Uh, so people would kind of split their ballots um, and, and might vote, you know, for one party at the top of the ticket for president and someone else for governor and then might vote for their congressperson who's a different party. And, and you'd, you'd be neither Democrat nor Republican. And I think what's one thing that's really changed since roughly the end of the Cold War is this really strong kind of sorting of ideology and partisanship such that um, basically the Republican Party is the party of conservatives and it's become more and more conservative uh, every year. Uh, and, and the Democratic Party is the party of progressives and liberals. Uh, and has gotten more liberal and progressive. And there's really not a lot of space in between, or at least a lot less space than there used to be. And people don't split their tickets across, uh, split their ballots across um, the two parties. So I think actually the story today is that the local elections look a lot more like the federal election, that the politics actually are a lot less different today than they used to be. Um, and uh, some people think that um, is good, because it kind of rationalizes politics and you know exactly who you're voting for and it's not confusing to kind of figure out what the story is at the local level as opposed to the national level. Um, I think the bad thing about it is it's really kind of reinforced this real what some people have started and I've started calling hyper polarization or hyper partisanship, um, which means that there are essentially two really well organized coordinated teams and you always know um, uh, how to vote. Uh, and there's a good aspect to that, but you also know who to vote against. Um, and it's reinforced this sense of um, us and us versus them. And so I think that's a kind of theme that I've been writing about and, and thinking about quite a bit because it's really hard to overcome that. And it causes lots of problems in election law and politics in in government. Um, and you're seeing that like every day you see that in basically every element of politics. And the story actually is quite the same kind of at the federal, uh, certainly at the state level, and often even at the local or municipal level, which is crazy because you wouldn't necessarily think like the local mayor making sure that your garbage is picked up, you know, every week um, necessarily has to opine or figure out what their position is vis-a-vis -vis Donald Trump or Joe Biden. But yet all of that, all of that polarization is kind of filtered throughout the system, even down to the local level in a way that if you're asking me, I think is, is basically unhealthy um, and, and, and create all kinds of pathologies for politics. So that would be sort of what I would think about the local local element of elections as opposed to federal. I think it's, it's gotten a lot less.
So I, I think I can you can you state the question again, or I can just speak generally to to issues in local politics. Uh, the question was, um, what are the biggest challenges to local elections in the future being fair and legitimate? Okay, so I'm, I'm guessing the person or who was thinking of that, or um, was maybe thinking of a particular local election that. Um, was stolen or fraudulent or, you know, had some maybe a corruption type issue, which um, I would say in municipal politics, a big issue uh, that you maybe see a little less often in Congress where there's 435 members and they vote on, on bills that, you know, you know the name of. One of the issues in local politics, at least in cities like, you know, in Philadelphia, council members are always getting indicted because they're very close to um, the workings of the city government and contracting and zoning and and um, it's very easy to be close to um, business interests and kind of special interests in a way that you really aren't when you're in a big legislative body. And so you see, um, you know, uh, you see a lot more prosecution. I don't, I don't necessarily think local government's more corrupt. I actually think it's a it's something that you and as students should think more about in terms of what happens at the local level, what you can do in education and, and issues that you may not think of as local issues, but even with climate change, you can make a big difference um, through uh, policy at the, at the city and state level. Um, but uh, I, in, in terms of fairness and kind of issues that come up in local government, um, it, it is common to see um, issues of corruption because of kind of that, that um, issue that I'm, I'm raising. But um, I think it's also common that cities have st more stringent campaign finance laws. So in Pennsylvania, uh, if you run for uh, city council in Philadelphia, at least you have a $3,000 limit on contributions. If you're running for the state legislature within Philadelphia, you have no contribution limits and you can get a $100,000 check from someone. Uh, so uh, what that can do effectively is it can it can hold local candidates to a uh, stricter standard and so they have incentives to go outside the system to you know get independent funding for their races um, and potentially coordinate with those so uh, mayor of New York had a problem with this in which there was an independent expenditure group that um, he supported uh, or supported him I believe or actually it was a little little uh, different in that it had to do with the state Senate but um, uh, but the idea is that, you know, local localities that are typically democratic might have stronger campaign finance rules, but then they also hold those candidates to a, to a higher standard of, of abiding those, abiding by those in, in sort of a challenging circumstance in which they still need to spend as much money. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe I'll just actually strike a positive note about sort of, you know, cities as laboratories of experimentation when it comes to campaign finance. Like there actually are interesting things being piloted on the ground in cities that, um, you know, are, are, I think in some instances actually working in 
um, making kind of a more broadly participatory democracy seem like a reality. Like New York, we've got this, and we've got tons of dysfunction at the state and local level, like to be clear. Um, but we've had a very effective matching program so that, you know, to encourage small dollar donors, the city has historically matched, it was six to one, and now it's eight to one. So, you know, you raise $10 um, if you're a candidate uh, for, say, mayor, and the city, if you've opted into this matching program, which has certain, like, you know, uh, in, there are certain limitations that you have to then agree to if you're going to opt into the match, but that turns into $90, right, in, in campaign money. And that's all, all of a sudden, like a $100 donation can be $900, and that's real money in a local campaign. And so the idea is it broadens the universe of, um, you know, individuals who are active in politics and as, as donors, in addition to as voters, um, historically, like if you've looked at you know, zip code data. It's it's been a very select group of individuals who've given money um, in local races at all, and so this has very effectively broadened the pool of participants. Um, and we're piloting actually this June ranked choice voting for our Democratic mayoral campaign. And there's a bunch of cities that already have ranked choice voting. The state of Maine statewide has it. Um, and I don't know, Michael, if you've written about ranked choice voting at all, but it's, you know, it's an, it's an interesting intervention that I think has a lot of potential. The idea sort of to the polarization. Now, this is a Democratic primary. So is it actually going to allow us to sort of transcend partisan divides? Not in the primary, of course. And um, but at the, you know, if it happened at the general election level, I think that the idea being that it discourages polarization by requiring or incentivizing candidates to reach out to a broader pool of people, to avoid alienating because they would like to be ranked second, even if they are not ranked first by, you know, uh, all kinds of pools of voters. Um, and then it just allows for the kind of building of coalitions and, um, you know, creates a certain kind of civic solidarity. If the person who wins isn't the person that you voted for, but is the person you voted third, you can rank up to five candidates. There is some real democratic value in that. Um, anyway, so we're doing it for the first time in New York. We will see how it goes. But, um, but in addition to, to the challenges, I think, facing local elections, um, there is a, a lot of, and this is true about campaign finance, um, sort of in other vouchers and other kinds of programs as well, um, there is interesting and productive experimentation happening as well. I, so I think those are great points. And um, I, I think there, there's sometimes a tendency, especially from kind of younger people that like, if you change the voting system, you can solve all the problems. And it's generally not the case that like these basic kind of pathologies and politics play out regardless of the system. But I do think it can make some difference. And you've seen a shift to, you know, top two primaries in, for instance, California, and some of the things that I think Professor Shaw hopes might happen in New York, I think have already happened there. Now, there are some weird outcomes that can happen because the dynamics are different. Sometimes the voting is more confusing. Um, but I think we're at, a, at the point where we ought to be experimental and, and kind of open-minded about thinking about some of these structural uh, changes. I think the point about devolving some of these governance questions and some policymaking to the municipal level makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so I think there's kind of this overarching question generally, if you think about election law or democratic governance is like, where do you locate these kinds of questions? Is it at the federal level? Does that make more sense? Is it more at the state level or local level? And actually historically Republicans have wanted to push it down to the local level. Um, I, I see that less prominently now because they've done so well, kind of certainly at the federal and, and state level. Um, so maybe the local government, they're actually kind of pushing preemption and stuff like that to, to make it harder to do things at the local level because they see Democrats who control most of the big cities. Um, they don't like to see Democrats kind of getting their way. And so you have to kind of think about nested majorities and, and what majority is the most important majority or, or what's the most democratic way of doing things. But, you know, 
I tend to think the municipal level is a is a pretty good level, both because um, that's kind of the right size um, of government, and often cities have like real political and cultural identities in ways that states it's a little bit harder to characterize. And when we think about like why someone moves someplace, you tend to think at the big city level rather than the state level. Like I don't think about moving to Illinois. I think about moving to Chicago. Um, and so Chicago has this kind of distinct character where it feels right to me that like Chicagoans might have some sort of political and cultural and societal kind of identity and preferences um, that make locating a lot of important choices at that level. Now, there's a lot of debate about that. I mean, maybe some people think that's largely a kind of big city bias or something like that. But I think that is kind of generally an important kind of set of questions that we should think about, um, especially as we're leading into this kind of highly partisan era where um, everything's kind of gridlocked. And so the one of the solutions is to kind of change these structural choices and move policy making to somewhere where maybe it works a little bit better. Uh, thank you. This question is directed specifically towards Professor Makija, but is open to all participants to answer. Uh, I'd like to ask about current efforts to pass uh, restrictions on private election financing, specifically in Arizona, where private companies can no longer contribute to the funds that are used to run the election specifically. How do you think that these laws will affect voter demographics specifically along racial and gendered lines? Interesting. So I actually don't, I'm not familiar with the law you're referring to. Um, if anyone else, uh, if any of the other panelists know about it, feel free to, to chime in. Um, but I can speak generally to kind of the, the second part of your question was about how that affects demographics. Um, and I can talk about generally how campaign finance, I think, Im impacts the demographics, um, given like the work of impact. Does that sound good? <laughs> um, so a couple of things we learned in Georgia and a couple and a number of different areas. And actually, Professor Shaw was, ta was talking about New York City and the great kind of public financing system there. And uh, impact, our goal is specifically in the Indian American community where we've never had representation in New York City until last cycle in the state assembly. And that's despite of a pretty decently sized population in Queens, especially. And this time we have five AAC candidates, um, South Asian candidates in these New York City elections. And we don't even have to support them financially because they already raised what they needed to raise through the public financing system. So I think having these systems ensures a more diverse um, uh, set of candidates are able to run. And if you look at the stats in terms of donors, um, I know you were talking about corporations, but in terms of hard side donors, the ones that you can actually track if you look them up on the FEC disclosures, um, the, the, the one study I've seen says that, you know, over 90% of those um, are white and not, not um, people of color. And then I think 80% um, are men. Um, I have to see how updated that is, but that those are the last stats that I've seen. And um, and so when you're a candidate and you want to run, uh, you know you're not necessarily connecting with people when you're you're a candidate of color and you want to run. Um, uh, you're ha you have a harder time, and you know that it's well documented. There's actually an article in 538 showing that for South Asian candidates, 
Uh, they tend to get started by raising money within their community and only after they get elected or after they've really established themselves are they able to break into kind of the established donor class, so to speak. So that's important and goes back to the voters in a different way to, to answer your question, which is that uh, the best way to turn out uh, a community of color is not what we traditionally thought, which was send canvassers, tell people what, you know, when election day is and you know, how to vote and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's actually to get a candidate from the community and have them on the ballot. So that, that is the best way to, to boost turnout in a community of color. And so uh, when you diversify the funding for candidates that helps those candidates get on the ballot, um, from diverse backgrounds, and then that helps turn out the community. Thank you. Um, so this question is specifically for Professor Shaw. Um, so on Monday, April 26th, the Supreme Court of the United States will be addressing the constitutional standard for disclosure of donor information for the first time since Justices Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, Elena Kagan, and Brett Kavanaugh joined the court. Uh, in the case of Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Rodriguez. So how can this case affect the implementation of Citizens United and affect the future of campaign finance? Yeah, so that's actually the case that I mentioned. Um, and it's a California disclosure law that, that, that is about the disclosure of donors to nonprofits as opposed to, to political campaigns. So again, it's not squarely a campaign finance case, but whatever the court says about the constitutionality of these compelled disclosure requirements will have ramifications in the campaign finance sphere. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a quirky case, so I think it's possible it'll just be a one-off um, because kind of the justification, so remember I was talking about some of the justifications that governments often give for requiring information about, you know, political money and it's, you know, about informing the public and holding elected officials accountable and things like that. Well, it, those justifications don't actually really work in this case very well because, um, these are these the donor identity is actually something that the California Attorney General is supposed to receive, but is then supposed to keep confidential, and it's just to make sure that you know other laws are complied with. So that's the reason that this these these um, these donor identities are to be disclosed under this kind of quirky California scheme. Um, now, the Solicitor General. So it's an interesting case in which the Solicitor General, the Trump Justice Department. Uh, initially filed a brief on the side of Americans for Prosperity, the entity challenging this disclosure law, um, and has switched positions. And I think I saw last week that the Solicitor General, so the top uh, Biden lawyer for Supreme Court argument purposes, um, is going to argue actually on behalf of California and in defense of the constitutionality of the law. So I think that's helpful. It's a good development. Um, so, um, so in some ways, it's kind of a quirky and one-off case, and I, and I truly don't know what the court is going to do. But um, I had a conversation about this on, on, a, on my podcast, actually, with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who so I attribute him, um, is the only reason I'm even mentioning him, uh, attribute this observation. Because I said, it's a kind of a quirky one-off case that might not matter that much. And he said, so was Citizens United, which of course is true, right? It was a quirky case about a movie that was being distributed via this video on demand technology, and it upended the law of campaign finance. Um, and so, it's certainly possible that could happen here too. Although again, the case is sort of particular and it's not about campaign finance disclosure per se. Um, I don't know if anybody else has thoughts on the case. So I actually haven't delved into all the briefs yet, but, um, but, I, but it's, it's a case that I, I think could be pretty important. Uh, Professor Kang, I'd like to ask how voter suppression has been contributed to by partisan gerrymandering laws both in traditionally liberal and traditionally conservative states, and 
how those two have been deployed differently, if at all. Yeah, so I tend to think of those two as, as kind of different. Um, they're both, I think these days, um, exploited more by Republicans than Democrats. Um, and they take advantage of majority control of state government uh, to lock in uh, partisan control when the demographics of a, of a jurisdiction seem to be running away from that majority party. So both of them are ways that a party tries to hold on to control of a state, for instance, um, even, if it, even if the state may be running against them in places like Georgia. Um, you see both of these things, partisan gerrymandering and um, voter suppression of, of certain types. Um, so I think they're both coming from kind of the same cause that the majority party wants to hold on to power um, and is rigging the rules basically to keep themselves in power. Now, I guess partisan gerrymander contributes to um, voter suppression in the sense that it allows sometimes a minority party to basically control the government in the first place. So you have states like Wisconsin where um, state control of state government had, had um, uh, party control of state government had kind of flip-flopped around for a little while, but Republicans controlled state government, Wisconsin state government uh, during the crucial period when um, uh, the redistricting uh, came up, the decennial redistricting cycle. And Republicans were able to gerrymander that state so successfully that essentially within kind of the reasonable range of political outcomes within the, the two-party vote, Republicans would keep a super, uh, super majority. And it really didn't matter whether Democrats did well or not well, or Republicans did well or not well. I think the first election, Democrats won more than 52% of the two-party vote, which is a lot. Um, and yet the Republicans still won 60 one seats or something like that out of 99. And then the next election, the Republicans actually did a lot better. They'd kind of flipped the outcome and, and Democrats had won like 48%, uh, which is substantially worse. Um, and the Republicans uh, only extended their lead by like a couple seats because they had already scooped up all the possible seats. And then when you look ahead to uh, 2018, which was like, um, seven years later, right, you'd think that the effects of the gerrymander would have worn off. Um, Democrats swept all the statewide seats. They had a majority of the two-party vote in the state legislative elections, and the Republicans actually gained seats, um, which is amazing, right? So this, these gerrymanders are incredibly durable, um, and they allow a, a party that has what might be otherwise temporary control of state government to kind of lock it in. And I think these voter suppression, or what people are characterizing as voter suppression, I think, I think that's largely accurate, um, is an attempt to do basically the same thing, which is to rig the voting rules in a way that favors your voters and favors your candidates so that you can use your current control of state government and your current control of the law um, to give yourself an advantage so that even if there are more people who are for the opposite party, you'll still win the election, right? So I think they're both kind of the same thing. I guess partisan gerrymandering allows uh, a minority party to get in in the first place. And then now they've got lawmaking power. And then it, it basically enables them to do the next thing, which is um, kind of voter suppression. But I think they're basically two versions of the same problem, which is a big problem um, that we're seeing all the time now. Thank you. Um, this question is for Professor Makija. So could you tell us a little bit more about your experience being sued by the Republican Party and maybe what that taught you about candidacy? 
Sure. There's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot I can say about that. And, you know, I didn't intend to run for office a year out of law school. I, I uh, discovered that in 1891, a coal baron from my hometown um, in Carbon County, Pennsylvania, went. he left a fund at Harvard that said anyone who gets in is covered with this coal fortune. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't have to go to a big firm and I went home and I, I worked um, in community organizations on the opioid issue. And I ran in a race that was now retrospectively impossible to win, but at the time was kind of, uh, um, uh, I, I felt was the most important, you know, the, the race that was going to flip the legislature. But um, the first thing that I did as a candidate, uh, you know, was get the petitions in the, you know, in the freezing cold, get a thousand signatures with my volunteers. And then you get on the ballot and you feel like you've had this great, um, you know, moment and achievement. And then you get served with the summons uh, that says to show up in court on this day um, and that you're going to be subpoenaed to, uh, you know, as a witness. So um, I didn't want to practice, but I became the, the respondent, the witness, and the associate on that case um, in my first year. And uh, it was the, the legal issue was about domicile, it which is it's it's kind of deeper than residence. Like you may be a resident of Chicago now, but um, you may pay taxes uh, in the in your home state where you grew up, or you know that's it's kind of this uh, deeper idea of of uh, where you're rooted. And so the case was about whether I was rooted in Pennsylvania, uh, where I grew up and was before law school, or whether it was Massachusetts where I went and felt the urgent desire to vote for Elizabeth Warren while I was a law student. Um, which may have uh, almost disqualified me from being a candidate. Uh, but uh, through luck, um, and I think a sympathetic judge who was actually a Republican uh, decided that, you know, even though I voted in another state, I was, uh, as a matter of law, a Pennsylvanian because I never intended to stay in Massachusetts. Uh, what was interesting about that was actually not the, well, the legal aspects um, you know, even though I lost my race um, in a heavily, you know, in a gerrymandered Republican district, uh, that precedent actually opened the door to another recent law student, um, a black woman in Pittsburgh, her name is Summer Lee, uh, to running uh, for the state house the following cycle. And she almost certainly would have gotten um, knocked off because her facts were uh, not as good as mine. And so uh, the precedent actually uh, scared the Republicans from challenging her on the same issue. So even though I lost a race, someone else got elected <laughs> because I did that, uh, which is uh, kind of a good result, I think, overall. Can I ask a question, Neil? Sure. So I actually did a study on, on those kinds of cases. And I'm wondering if you think there was any ideological component to the legal issue itself, not like the outcome of the case and who gets to run and who doesn't. But was this just like, there's probably better and worse answers based on statutory interpretation or the text or something like that, or legislative history, but just in terms of the ideological complexion, was there a conservative or a liberal position on, on that question? So I think, um, I actually think my case was wrongly decided, <laughs> but, but I'll take it uh, because the judge said that I was coerced to go to Massachusetts because of the economic realities of the legal profession and going to like, 
you know, the best law school I could get into, which was not a really sound legal argument. Um, and she actually compared that the prior case was uh, a veteran who was coerced because he was deployed in a certain area where he was stationed in Texas. And so he voted in Texas and that was okay. Um, even though he could have voted absentee, but uh, the ruling for him was that he was okay. He could stay on the ballot. Prior to his case, there was a law student who went to school in Virginia who did vote in Virginia and then got knocked off the ballot. So we thought I was going to fall under that precedent and I was out. Um, but I think um, it's funny that the, the, the judge's husband did go to my law school. We wonder if that was a factor. Um, and just like the, I don't know, there was a sympathy there. Um, and I think the fact that our, we really just stressed that if I wasn't on the ballot, there wasn't gonna be an election. And so, you know, do you wanna let the voters decide or do you wanna decide this like kind of maybe on the border case of whether or not I'm a Pennsylvanian. So I, I think that kind of stuck with them. The other factor was the PA Supreme Court just totally changed the year before. So I was actually hoping that they would appeal and I would go to the Supreme Court in my first case at a law school, which would have been, you know, awesome <laughs> for many reasons. But they didn't appeal because that, you know, that's the court that struck down the gerrymandering and everything. But, you know, I, I, it still surprises me that that we have some of these laws on the books for how, like the, some of them are seven years, you know, like if we, um, it, it certainly comes from, I don't know if it's like a nativism, um, in that way, but it, it's, it's a law that benefits the people who write the laws, of which there are many in that category. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if that answers your question, so to speak. But. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Thanks. Mm -hmm. All right, this one is uh, general again. So since our audience is almost all undergraduate students, what advice do all of you have on becoming a lawyer, law school, and especially navigating the legal field in COVID. Uh, Professor Kang, if you'd like to start us off. Yeah, I mean, I think there's different advice for each of those paths. So I'm happy to take uh, any one of those and leave the rest. Um, uh, I'll, I'll take the law professor one. So I think the law professor route is really um, complicated these days. Um, and, it, and it is essentially like a very heavily research oriented job. So I think there was once a point where if you were like a star law student at, you know, at Yale Law School or something like that, you had really good grades and everyone thought you're super smart, then you'd go like do your clerkships and then you'd come back and, and you teach law. Now law school teaching positions are essentially like um, the college positions where it's really based heavily on research. So I think if you're thinking about that, um, there's a lot of stuff you have to kind of line up um, uh, these days far in advance. And so um, I would get a lot of advice about that, like even as early as the position you guys are in now, because you might think about, for instance, going to grad school because a lot of the hiring is out of um, PhD, JD, PhD programs where you have both a law degree and a PhD. Now that's not exclusive. Uh, there's lots of you know, uh, really smart people who do awesome research um, that don't have PhDs that everyone wants to hire. Um, but uh, I think that tends to be kind of modal for the top law schools. Like the top law schools tend to look 
uh, for those kinds of credentials. And there's lots of reasons why those types of candidates are in better position today um, because they have time basically to, to do research and write. Um, and that's really the currency of the realm uh, for legal academia. Now the story for going into law, um, being a corporate lawyer or working at the White House, uh, those, those are totally different things. But I do think we're increasingly kind of moving toward a specialized world where um, you know, you can kind of keep your options open, but uh, there are certain steps that you want to really seriously consider if you want to go one route as opposed to another. And certainly legal academia is one of these routes where um, there's a lot of specialization. So happy, you know, if anyone's sort of interested in thinking about this as early as um, you guys, you know, feel free to email me and, and happy to sort of talk about that and, and lend advice. I'm, I'm happy to go next. Um, yeah, so so that I think covers the sort of the law teaching route. Um, I have much to add on that. Um, maybe just, I'll just underscore something I kind of alluded to earlier, which is that I do think that, um, you know, if you want to go to into government or maybe into law teaching, it probably does make sense to go to like the best law school you can. Um, but I also want to say, so I think I, I think if you if you may want to practice public interest law, it makes sense to think about admissions decisions with an eye to what a really significant debt load might mean in terms of constraining your choices. Um, but let me put another asterisk on that. As I did say, um, I did have law school debt and I just, you know, I was coming out of a Supreme Court clerkship and there are these law firms with these very big bonuses that they give you. And then there was literally an unpaid job sleeping on a couch in supporter housing in like the outskirts of Philadelphia. Um, and I just like took a leap of faith and did the couch thing. Um, and it's like a monthly payment, like your rent or anything else. Like law school loans don't have to truly constrain your choices, even significant ones. So I do think that getting into a good law school and still saying I don't have to go to a law firm if I don't want to go to a law firm, like is a possible path. Um, and I do think that if you have a sense that um, you want to do political law, like work, get, get you know, or, or are interested in working in government, whether that's state or federal, go volunteer on, on some campaigns. Like I, you know, I didn't as an undergrad, I did in law school um, and then, but never on a presidential until I was already a young lawyer. But I think that's incredible experience um, to get and um, can sort of forge connections. I still talk to people, the person who was like on the other side of the wall on the other couch when I first got to Philadelphia um, uh, as like a new lawyer. Um, so, so I think that, that but it, it is a path that is just different from doing a summer associate position at a law firm and then going post-graduation, maybe after a clerkship back to that law firm. So you have to kind of forge your own path in a different way. Um, but people are pretty generous with their time if you sort of seek advice about how to get there. Um, but you know, be, be willing to sort of take leaps and do uncomfortable and unfamiliar things uh, if that's a kind of a path you're interested in pursuing. Yeah, and in terms of, uh, I mean, general advice on law school and your path as a lawyer, I mean, I have, I've not had a conventional path. I did, you know, I almost went to a firm, didn't do it. I ended up working on the plaintiff side, um, which I really enjoyed and, and very few of my kind of classmates um, have done. But um, I would say, you know, when I was applying, I didn't know much about the actual practice of law. I didn't know the value of clerking, which is very valuable. Um, and I didn't necessarily have like a parent or somebody I was very close to who was a lawyer who could kind of instill that in me. So I would encourage you to kind of develop um, those kinds of mentors. Obviously, I'm, I'm happy to be helpful to anyone, um, but in general, to, to really have um, 
you know, some kind of sounding board or to seek that out um, on on your path and your interests and, and the best way to pursue them on a, on a consistent basis. Because in law school, I really noticed when, you know, I had a friend who, who had a parent who was a lawyer or, um, you know, somebody in their family, I think it really helped guide them in a way that uh, it's hard to outside of having that um, direct access to someone with the experience. Um, but I, I will say there's so many paths and also encourage you all uh, to join campaigns if you care about um, politics and government, because it's the best way to be, um, you know, kind of, it, it, you build a cohort um, and a community of people who really want to make a difference, and you get to know how the system really works that way. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, and with that, we'll wrap up. Thank you, everyone, for coming um, and uh, for participating in our discussion. Um, we especially want to thank uh, Professor Kang, Professor Shaw, and Professor Makija uh, for speaking with us. And thank you guys for sharing your insights on this very broad um, and really awesome topic. Um, I also want to thank Allison and Devon for uh, moderating. So thank you guys. That was awesome. Um, just to let everyone know, our next symposium event is the LSAT 101 webinar. Um, that's this Wednesday, April 21st from 6 to 7.30 PM Central. Um, and the link is available on our website. So we hope you'll be able to join us then. Um, and until then, have a great evening. Thank you, everyone.